do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that text, of course, is found near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It can be found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Go ahead and turn there with me, if you would. Matthew five seventeen. And while you're finding that, think about if you've ever written, ridden on a train, I think we can compare riding on a train to two other forms of transportation. A train is faster than walking, and it's slower than flying, And a train's pace, I think, really describes how we're going to begin walking through the Pentateuch, the Torah, the Law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If we were walking, we would do our usual verse-by-verse, phrase-by-phrase study. And if we were flying, we would do a whole book, such as Genesis, in one message, just to look at the scenery kind of from 35,000 feet. So we're going to do something in between that pace for the next number of weeks and months Now, it takes a while to get a train moving. So let me tell you what I'm going to do for the next five messages. Then I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do for the next 50 to 60 minutes. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do for the next five to 10 minutes. How about that? The next five messages we're calling Pentateuch Series 1. And this is an introduction to the Pentateuch. I'm going to tell you more about that later. For the next 50 to 60 minutes, I'm going to do an introduction to the introduction to the Pentateuch. And right now, for the next 10 minutes or so, I'm going to do an introduction to the introduction to the introduction to the Pentateuch. Now, because any introduction to an introduction to an introduction of the Pentateuch has to consider the question of the relevance of Scripture, we also have to consider the relevance of the Old Testament to our lives. And specifically, how is the the Pentateuch, these old books, 3,500 years old, how does that apply to me? How is that relevant And it seems that people will use any excuse to avoid being confronted by Scripture. They'll say, well, there are different interpretations. And this is my favorite. Well, that's just cultural. Or they'll say, well, the Bible has mistakes in it. And this one particular sin that I want to keep in my own life is one of those mistakes. But the fact is, is that the Bible's never changed. It just stays the same generation after generation. It continues on as the written revelation of the the very mind of God. And all the swirling opinions of the Bible don't do anything to move that rock of Scripture. All the reinterpretation, all the accusation, all the ridiculing of Scripture, these do nothing to stop the piercing x-ray vision of God's truth from peering into the deepest depths of your heart, generation after generation. And so if in the world we're up against a cultural backlash against Scripture, even more so, we're also against a cultural backlash against the Old Testament and against the Pentateuch, even more specifically, from the church. There's a backlash in the church of Jesus Christ against these five books of the Old Testament. Well, aren't we New Testament Christians, what they'll say? We're not bound by the law of Moses anymore because of the cross. So the old, doesn't the Old Testament have a, a secondary place for us now? And what's very popular today, growing in leaps and bounds in reform circles, is doesn't the New Testament now reinterpret and change the meaning of the Old Testament? Some might go far, so far as to say it's hard enough seeing how the New Testament's relevant to my life 2,000 years later, but the Old Testament certainly can't be relevant. Many would say, in fact, that the Bible is not kept up with the times. And this is evidenced by how many Christians all but ignore what the Bible says about family, about the role of men and women, about the church, about gender identity. And so the conclusion is, is that the Bible has not kept up with the times. Times have changed. Well, that's not the case at all. It's simply the fact that it's the other way around. The times have not kept up with the Bible. There is no place for the Christian to make the Old Testament somehow secondary. No, we are not bound by the law of God as found in the Old Testament. More on that in a later message. But we are bound by the God of the law. 
He hasn't changed. The same God who gave the law of Moses also gave what 1 Corinthians 9 and Galatians 6 calls the law of Christ. And so we are bound by the God of the law. Now, I could spend numbers of messages expounding on the relevance of Scripture and even on the Old Testament, but I think it's just easier and quicker to ask this question. What did Jesus think of the Old Testament, and what did he think of the Pentateuch? And that's why I open our time tonight in Matthew chapter 5, because it answers that question. What did he think? Well, let's just walk through this briefly. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He didn't come to abolish the law. He didn't come to abolish the prophets. And and these are technical terms for the law being Torah or Pentateuch, first five books, and the prophets, basically the other writings of the Old Testament. So we can mark that off as a possibility. The Lord Jesus Christ did not render the Old Testament irrelevant. Instead, he came to fulfill the Old Testament. So this is where we kind of have to start. How did he fulfill the Old Testament? Let me give you four ways that he is the fulfillment. First of all, he is something he's doing right now in the Sermon on the Mount. He's getting Israel back to the original standard of the law, that obedience to the law of God reflects an internal faith, not just external obedience. The the scribes and Pharisees were constantly trying to find loopholes and technicalities which would allow them to live their debauched and selfish lives where they pretended to be religious, but they while appearing to obey the law, aren't. And Jesus came to call them out on this, to remind them that God knows your true heart. Uh, As an example, right near this text, the self-righteous Jew would bring his sacrifice to the temple and yet would, would still have been offending the fellow Jews around him without conscience at all, without any sort of guilt, without any conviction. And Jesus Christ put the standard of the law of God back where it belonged. Look with me at verse 23 of chapter 5. This is the real standard. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So he's he's putting the standard of internal reality of faith back where it belongs. And he fulfills the law in that way. The second way that he fulfills the law is by living a life of perfect obedience to the law. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the law, which would later be exchanged before God for your life of disobedience. Jesus never once broke the law of God. He very often broke the man-made religious traditions, and I I personally think he probably enjoyed it because they didn't have any authority. They didn't have any authority at all. The, The scripture clearly affirms the sinlessness of Christ as confirmed by his lawful behavior. Here's a third way he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all the prophecies of a coming Messiah and Savior and King in the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of all of them. The Old Testament is just barely out of the starting gate when in Genesis 3.15, we get the first prophecy of a coming Savior. And every Jew understood that the Old Testament was just loaded with promises of a coming anointed one, a Messiah who would save his people. And then the fourth way that he fulfills the Old Testament is by fulfilling the incomplete picture of the Old Testament sacrificial system. This was a system in which sacrifice had to be repeated over and over and over again. But Jesus came to be the Lamb of God for the sins of the world. He came to be the once-for-all sacrifice. So he fulfilled the law. In verse 18, notice the promise that Jesus made concerning the law. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. This is the famous in the King James Version, the famous jot and tittle of the Bible. It's rendered here, an iota, not a dot. Easy way to think about this. Think it's the tiniest mark in Greek and the tiniest mark in Hebrew. None of it will pass away. And then in verse 19, He elevates the law as the means by which somebody expresses true faith. Not a way to gain faith, but to express the faith that you have in the Lord. Now, apparently, according to verse 19, it is possible to have a low view of Scripture and still enter the kingdom of heaven. But what place will you have? Well, according to verse 19, you'll be the least in the kingdom because of your view of Scripture. 
Instead, he encourages the faithful to do and to teach the law. And yes, there are implications for us as new covenant believers. We'll cover that in a later message. But Jesus is specifically talking about the Old Testament. And he's supporting the authority of the Old Testament. He's, in fact, mandating its use as the standard of behavior over those who would have true faith in the Lord. And in fact, I like the end of verse 19 that says, whoever teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's kind of motivating for me, to be honest with you. And then in verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees outwardly had a tremendous commitment to the law of God, but it was outward. And Jesus just absolutely outstrips this by a mile, that the law of God isn't just something you're dedicated to. The law of God is the heartbeat of one who truly loves the Lord. The one with true saving faith in God has the attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 119, verses 5 and 6. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. He wants to be steadfast in obedience, having his eyes fixed on the commandments of God. What tremendous commitment to internal faith. So, is the Old Testament relevant Well, Jesus thought so, and in fact, he measured not only true faith, but also kingdom reward by your attitude toward the Old Testament. Now, let's get the train moving a little bit faster, very slowly inching forward tonight to introduce the introductory messages. I have a very simple plan. I want to go through the what, the who, the why, and the how of the Pentateuch. And before we're finished, I'll let you know our overall plan. And I think this is very important and listen carefully for this, how you can get the most out of this series. This is something I've never done before and this is something you've never sat through before. So we'll kind of experiment here together. So let's just start with the what. What is the Pentateuch in broad terms? And then I'm going to do some uh, more questions along the what lines. What is the Pentateuch, just in broad terms? Well, the word Pentateuch is derived from a Greek word that means five books or a five-volume scroll. This was applied to the first five books of the Old Testament, commonly referred to in Hebrew as the Humash, which means the five-fifths, or the Torah, which just means the law. It's really a nickname. And so we'll divide our thoughts here into several what questions. First of all, what is the cosmic nature of the Pentateuch? What is the cosmic nature of the Pentateuch? The Pentateuch is is absolutely vast in terms of the scope of time that it covers. In terms of years, it covers more than the rest of the Bible combined. It covers an immense amount of time. The Pentateuch begins at creation some thousands of years before the birth of Christ and goes all the way to about 1406 B.C., when Deuteronomy was preached by Moses to Israel and the conquest of Canaan began. So this, this encompasses thousands of years. The Pentateuch is also completely unique in terms of historic literature because it's the revelation of the mind of the one true living God. It answers all the questions that the ancient polytheistic pagan groped after and that they couldn't find, but it answers all those questions. The Bible alone discloses that the earth and the universe exist because the one God named Yahweh brought it into being for his own definite purposes. And even though the Pentateuch was written in a day long before scientific precision and is, of course, an ancient document at 3,500 years old, one of the world's foremost archaeologists, a guy named W.E. Albright, he said this, quote, modern science cannot improve on it. In fact, modern scientific hypotheses show such a disconcerting tendency to be short-lived that it may be seriously doubted whether science has yet caught up with the biblical story. And we would say that. There's still so much debate about the origins of all things. There's no debate in this room. We just turn to Genesis 1 and say it's really quite clear right here. So the, the cosmic nature of the Pentateuch is it's vast. It's, it's almost incomprehensible. Another question, what is the historical nature of the Pentateuch? What's the historical nature of the Pentateuch? Well, I think the Pentateuch, especially by, by Christians who haven't read it that much, very often written off as just the law of Moses. That is an accurate nickname, but it is just a nickname. It's not a pure description of the genre or the type of literature. 
We think of the law, we think of boring books that only a few people like to read. But that's not what it is. The, the Pentateuch contains the law of Moses, but it's heavily weighted with what we call the genre of narrative, of story. The book of Genesis is completely narrative. Exodus 1 through 19 is almost entirely narrative. Exodus 20 through 40 is law and how the law was to be practically implemented in, in the land of Israel, in the promised land. Leviticus is religious instruction with very clear emphasis on the holiness of God and how that's lived out in the holiness of his people. Numbers is mixed. It's mostly narrative. We, we get a, numbers gets a bad rap because there are very few numbers in the book of Numbers. But it's mostly narrative. It's mostly story with just a few chapters of law. And then Deuteronomy is law, but in a very specific format, in a very living format, there's the Sermon of Moses. There are the farewell speeches before the death of Moses and Israel's conquest of Canaan. There's a long covenant ratification text, a reiteration of the covenant of God with his people. And specifically, it contains, and I'll explain this more in coming messages, it contains a stipulation section which regulates the behavior of the lower, the servant, the vassal, toward the sovereign, the higher, Yahweh, and so it's a living document. Deuteronomy isn't just dry law. It is the story of how you as God's chosen nation are to live before God. And so the, the Pentateuch, it contains narrative. It contains poetry. It contains genealogies, prescriptive law, exhortation, covenant stipulations, covenant conditions. And the story is completely historically accurate from top to bottom. But what I like to point out with a smile is that God didn't ask the opinions of any human historians. What do you think I should write about? He didn't ask any opinions on what part of history should be emphasized. The, the Pentateuch starts broadly with the story of creation, but then it, it gets very specific very quickly. It doesn't continue to give a broad systematic record of human history. It specifically is the history of God's kingdom plan. It records the fall of mankind into sin, God's plan for redeeming mankind to form a kingdom on earth. And the Pentateuch makes it clear that the rest of human history, everything else is merely background scenery and tools in the hand of God for redemptive history. I mean, you think about all the history of all the nations, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Mayans, the Peruvians, all kinds of peoples from every age. What are they all for? Ultimately, we get to Revelation 22 and we see that they are to bring their glory into Jerusalem. That's why they exist. And so the Lord in his history that is divinely inspired gets very, very focused on redemptive plan. In just chapters 10, 11, and 12 of Genesis, we see God's emphasis on history. He's ordained and blessed the, the formation of nations on earth. And to give the revelation of God to these nations, God would choose one particular nation named Israel, who was to be the light of God's redemptive plan and the means by which a redeemer would come to the world. So the historical nature of the Pentateuch is very focused on the redemptive plan of God, and it is completely accurate. There's another what question. What is the theological nature of the Pentateuch? What is the theological nature of the Pentateuch? The Pentateuch covers what theologians call prolegomena. You don't have to try to, to spell that. But prolegomena comes from a Greek word which just means to speak beforehand. It, it speaks of methods, presuppositions, assumptions that you have before you embark on a theological study. If you get a good systematic theology and pull it off your shelf, almost every time you open it up and chapter one will be called prolegomena. That's a section at the beginning. The prolegomena of the Pentateuch is massive in scope and brief in nature. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period. That's the prolegomena. You think, well, that's really short, but listen to what that tells us. This presupposes the existence of God. It presupposes the eternality of God. It presupposes the divine authorship of that very account. It presupposes God's rights over the world because he made everything. It presupposes God's omnipotent power to be able to make everything. And, and so already, just in the first verse, the, the prolegomena, we'll call it, you're armed with presuppositions. The, the Bible does not begin, let me give you 10 reasons why God exists. 
It just says, in the beginning, God. The rest of the Pentateuch now makes sense. But what else do we see in theology? In the Pentateuch, we learn that God is the singular creator of the universe, that he is holy and righteous and pure. That's theology proper. We learn that mankind is created in the image of God as the highest expression of creation. That is anthropology from a theological standpoint. We learn of the sin nature of mankind and the need for salvation from sin. That is homardiology. We learn the formation of a nation through whom redemptive, his redemptive plan would come. That is Israelology. We learn that God is forming the people for himself, first through his chosen nation and then expanding beyond his nation to all peoples. That is ecclesiology, the study of the church. We learn that the spirit of God works in the people of God in the Old Testament, less obviously, but very clearly happening nonetheless. That is pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. We learn in the Pentateuch that God has an army of beings specially created to further his redemptive purposes and to guard the interests of God's chosen people, angelology. We learn that God's original purpose was to establish a kingdom on earth and that he will maintain this decree, he will maintain this plan. There is no plan B with God and he will bring it to pass when the coming Savior King arrives permanently. That's eschatology. Study of end times. We learn that the people of God are, God are to be set apart. They're to be called to holiness and be, to be different. That is applied theology. We learn that God has revealed himself to mankind through special or written revelation. We call that bibliology, the Bible, study of the Bible. We learn that salvation would come through a savior. That is soteriology, the study of salvation. And we learn in the Pentateuch that this Savior would be a prophet like Moses, a son of Abraham, a son of Judah, a priest like Melchizedek, and a coming king. We learn all that in the Pentateuch. That's our Christology, our study of Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. So we we get tremendous theology representing literally every major area of theology just in these five books. So that's the what of the Pentateuch. I want to look now at the who of the Pentateuch, specifically who wrote it. Now, we could save a lot of time and just say Moses, case closed. But I want you to understand why we believe this, and I'm going to tell you why it's so important. It's extremely important that you understand why. First of all, we know from the Gospels that Jesus believed that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. But because the authorship of the Pentateuch and really the rest of Scripture is now under under constant attack, I want to pour this concrete foundation a little bit uh, more broadly for you. To answer the question of the authorship of the books of the Bible, I'm sorry, the question of the authorship of the books of the Bible, that, that's now accepted practice. In fact, you're considered quite the Bible scholar if you challenge traditional understanding of authorship in the Bible. And so what this has led to is, is making it okay and in fact making it to where uh, people are, are looked up to and they're valued because they question Scripture. They question the authorship of Scripture and when you start questioning the authorship of Scripture, it's just a, a downward slide on a slippery slope toward questioning everything else in Scripture. And the more you question about the Bible, the less inherent authority it seems to have. Now, one theory of the authorship of the Pentateuch, which has basically been dismantled, but it has some continuing effects, is called the documentary hypothesis. The documentary hypothesis has been largely disproven, but the effect of it lingers on because it's still in, it's still vogue to question authorship, especially in the name of being academically original. And so if you choose to do further study in the Pentateuch, you're still going to find dozens of commentaries and countless articles that refer to the documentary hypothesis as if it's fact, as if it's real. Now, where does this come from? In the mid-18th century, a theologian named Jean Astruc, he, he believed that he could find the original sources behind the Pentateuch. In other words, the real book of God. And the way he did this was to use the divine names of God, Yahweh and Elohim, that were in the Pentateuch, and to use them as a guide. Passages with Yahweh went into one category, and passages with Elohim went into another category. And he theorized, he postulated that they came from different original sources, that whoever wrote the Pentateuch took these sources and just copied them down and sort of cut and pasted all together. 
Well, this theory was refined by K.H. Graff and Julius Wellhausen and became known as the Documentary Hypothesis or the Graff-Wellhausen Hypothesis. And they, they took it to another level. They thought the Pentateuch had four original sources and they assigned a letter of the alphabet to each of them. J for Yahwist sources where Yahweh is mentioned. E for Elohist sources where Elohim is mentioned. D for Deuteronomist sources. That's essentially the book of Deuteronomy. And P for the priestly code. And they would say those came from four different sources. They would say J Yahwist was the oldest. E is later than J. D was produced in the reign of Josiah and is mostly the book of Deuteronomy. And P was produced after the exile a thousand years after J. You see what they're saying? They're saying that the Pentateuch is basically cut and pasted together over the, over the period of a thousand years. Well, one small problem with that theory is that there's no evidence for it at all but it's filled with assumptions that are unprovable. In an extremely detailed and scholarly analysis, Dr. Dwayne Garrett rightly concludes, quote, the documentary hypothesis must be abandoned. But scholars keep on talking about it and they keep referring to it as if it's fact, but it's a problem because it saps the scripture of its divine nature, of its origins. Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And just to make sure that you understand that this is an airtight argument, let me just give you 10 quick bullet point reasons. And, and you're wondering, why are we doing this? I'll tell you that in a moment, why it matters. Just real quickly, number one, there are five places in the Pentateuch that Moses wrote at least that part of it. it says Moses wrote it. Secondly, there's one place that explicitly says he wrote all of it. Deuteronomy 31, beginning of verse 24, when Moses had finished writing the words of this law in the book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the book, the Ark into the covenant of the Lord, carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. He said, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant. And so that brings us to reason number three. The book of the law is a technical term used by God to refer to the Pentateuch. God told Joshua to study and meditate on what Moses wrote, the book of the law, Joshua 1, 7 and 8. The book of the law is the technical term used by the Old Testament scholar Saul of Tarsus, better known as the Apostle Paul, in Galatians 3, verse 10, to refer specifically to the Pentateuch, the book of the law. There's a fourth reason. There are other places in the Old Testament that affirm that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Joshua 8, Joshua 23, 1 Kings 2, 2 Kings 14, 2 Kings 18, 2 Kings 23, Ezra 6, Nehemiah 13, 2 Chronicles 25. And so we have to say that all those guys didn't know what they were talking about. There's a fifth reason. The Gospels affirm Moses as the author by calling the Pentateuch the Law of Moses, the Book of Moses, or sometimes it's just called Moses. It's the sixth reason. The Apostle Paul said Moses is the author. I can give you two or three different places there. The seventh reason is the total unity of the narrative story. Can you imagine? Look, I've been a little bit in the world of writing and just getting two people to try to write something together is a massive project. Can you imagine getting multiple people to try to write something together over the course of a thousand years and have it make sense? That's ludicrous. There's unity in the story. It's not a patchwork quilt put together by editors of the material over, over a thousand years. It is the product of one mind. There's an eighth reason not only the unity of the narrative story, but the total unity of the narrative structure. Yet maybe some people could patch together a story that makes sense, but these so-called original sources also had to, completely independently of one another, use very unusual structural features that were the same. For example, many of the main narrative story sections in the Pentateuch are suddenly ended by a large section of poetry, sometimes followed by an epilogue. Now, if the Pentateuch is written over the course of a thousand years, how did these guys know to do that? They didn't. They couldn't know that. There's a ninth reason, the total unity in grammar. The total unity in grammar. One example, the, the entire Old Testament makes a very clear distinction between third-person pronouns, he and she. For whatever reason, the author of the Pentateuch very consistently only uses he. And that doesn't happen anywhere else in the Old Testament, just in those five books. 
But the tenth reason, and this is a simple one, Moses is the most logical choice as the author. He's the main character from Exodus to Deuteronomy. He's the mediator through whom God affected Israel's deliverance and gave Israel her law. He was the most highly educated Israelite of his day. He was educated in, in Pharaoh's Egyptian court, and he was the clear spiritual leader of all Israel. I mean, honestly, who else are you going to get? He was sort of on a short list of one. Now, there are always the naysayers. There's always somebody who's negative, and they point to the very end of Deuteronomy, 12 whole verses. Deuteronomy 34, verse 5 says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And they say, Aha! Moses couldn't have written of his own death. Really? Well, why not? God gave him the word that said that he would die. God had already told him he would die. He would not enter into Israel. Jesus wrote of his own death in that he predicted his own death and the details surrounding it. And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, there's no reason Moses couldn't do the same. But even if Moses didn't write those last 12 whole verses of Deuteronomy, that doesn't take away from the Mosaic authorship of the entire Pentateuch. Now, me personally, I do not think Moses wrote the last 12 verses. I don't think he did because it contains material that I don't think Moses would write. Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all the land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. But frankly, that statement alone says, who else would have written the Pentateuch? It had to be him. Now, so that this doesn't become just a purely academic exercise, why does the authorship of the Pentateuch matter? Because anything less than Moses as the author of the Pentateuch calls into question the moral and the ethical character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what do we mean by that? Because here's what Jesus said of the Pentateuch in John 5, 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he, singular personal pronoun, wrote of me. If Moses didn't write Pentateuch, Jesus is blowing smoke. He's a liar. That's why it's important. And so we defend the authorship of Moses. Well, that's the what and the who. Let's get down to business now. Why ought we make a study of the Pentateuch? Let me give you three reasons. Why should we do this? The first reason, it's value for sanctification in Christ-likeness. It's value for sanctification in Christ-likeness. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And when Paul wrote this to Timothy, the, the New Testament wasn't complete yet. And so when Paul spoke of Scripture, he was by default and by habit speaking of the Old Testament. And what he said of the Scripture is also true, obviously, of the New Testament, but when he wrote this to Timothy in the mid-60s AD, there was still, in all likelihood, we didn't have Second Peter, we didn't have Hebrews, Jude, uh, the Gospel of John, First, Second, and Third John, and Revelation. We didn't have those. And so Paul is saying, at least in part, the Old Testament is breathed out by God and is profitable for us as believers in Christ. There's a second reason to do this. It's value for accelerating your grasp of Scripture. It's value for accelerating your grasp of Scripture. Now, I'll be honest with you. What we're doing beginning tonight is somewhat of an experiment in trying to help you assimilate a larger quantity of Scripture in a relatively short period of time. Now, let me define what I mean by relatively short period of time. I'm trying to teach you these all-important five books of the Bible in about 60 messages. And let me just help your perspective on that. Here at Grace Bible Church, I preach the book of Revelation in 50 messages. Revelation has 404 verses, so we went at an average pace of 8.1 verses per message. The Pentateuch has a total of 5,853 verses. By verse count is 21.2% of the entire Old Testament. So we'll need to average 97.6 verses per message. But small problem, I'm not going to start walking through the text until message number six. 
So we'll need to average 106.4 verses per message. The moral of this story is read ahead. We're going to go fast. And this doesn't mean, by the way, that I might not go back and preach some of these books at a traditional pace. I hope I get to do that. But I want to take what is 21.2% of the entire Old Testament and present that to you in that relatively short period of time. And in reason number three, why should we do this? It's value for placing the redemptive plan of God in context. It's value for placing the redemptive plan of God in context. R.C. Sproul wrote that the Pentateuch, quote, is the first and most important section of the Old Testament for both Jewish and Christians in their Bibles. And it is from the Pentateuch that we learn the origin of all things, the nature of man, both as the image of God and as the fallen creature that needs redemption, how sin entered the world and what its devastating impact has been, what God plans to do about sin through Abraham, who makes a family, who makes a people, who makes Moses, who makes a nation, who makes a savior. And without understanding the Pentateuch, the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, it has no context It doesn't have a setting to it. It has no place or function in the overall scheme of God's redemptive plan. Jesus now just becomes some guy who happened to drop out of eternity and happened to be Jewish. And now Jesus is reduced to the bumper sticker, I worship a Jewish carpenter, which by itself doesn't make sense. I wonder how the unbeliever who doesn't know about the Bible sees that and wonder, why do you worship a Jewish carpenter? That's weird. Though with the Pentateuch, we understand it. So having explored the what, who, and why, how are we going to do this? Now, I will confess to you, and I won't say this out loud very often, but I admit I have awakened in a cold sweat more than once, dreaming that I was in this pulpit with the Pentateuch and frozen into a catatonic state because there's just too much. The scope of this is overwhelming. So the first part of how we're going to do this is you're going to pray for me because I need it. But beyond that, what I want to do tonight to help you kind of get oriented is I want to share with you my preaching plan. That'll help you gauge your own reading. I want to share with you the key words for each book to help your thinking. And finally, I want to give you some challenges that are before us and how you can apply this book, these books to be life-changing. So let me share with you my preaching plan, first of all, for the next four messages. I want to address some introductory issues, some just get your mind going in the right direction which I think will help you stay on track and not get diverted by details, which very often become obsessions, things like Sabbath and tithing and do the promises to Israel apply to the church? Is baptism now what circumcision was back then? I don't want you to get distracted by those details, not yet. And so I think that understanding the big picture will help you put those smaller details in the right perspective. So for the next four messages, here's what we're going to do. Next Sunday evening, we're going to look at the theological center of the Pentateuch. And we're going to examine what I'm calling the central directive, which also happens to be the central directive of the Bible. And this is why I said earlier in in an announcement that if you understand the Pentateuch and the purpose of it, you understand the Bible and the purpose of it. What is the Bible about? What is the purpose statement of the Pentateuch? How do we understand the, the centerpiece of the theology of the Pentateuch? The message after that, I want to examine the Christian and the Old Testament law. How is it that we as New Covenant believers are not bound by Old Testament law and yet all Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness? How do we make use of the law of God and find what the writer of Psalm 119 found, delight, joy, pleasure, amazement, awe, comfort, guidance, vindication, humility in the law of Moses? How do we do that? The message after that, I want to talk about the Christian in the Old Testament story. Why does the narrative portion, the stories of the Pentateuch, why do they still concern the Christian far beyond just being interesting stories or illustrations? How do we take Old Testament stories beyond just being reduced to Sunday school coloring pages? How are we to think about those stories and the dramas and the characters which unfold in the Pentateuch How do we avoid just moralizing those stories into overly simple life lessons? So I want to explore with you how to view those stories and how to apply them. And then our last introductory message, I just want to talk to you about grasping or understanding life in Bible times. I I want you as much as I can 
to understand Noah and Abraham and Moses and Joseph and, and the, the world that they lived in, to understand the ancient Near East, what it was like so that when, when we talk about Israel continually being set apart, made holy, being distinct from the world, you'll know what it is they're being set apart from. And that will help us understand what you are to strive to be set apart from. So that's how we'll kind of introduce that and we'll call all that Pentateuch Series 1. And then we'll follow, hopefully, kind of the same pattern for the next five series, one each for Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I'll do an introductory message to specifically orient you to that particular book. And then we'll walk through each of the books in 10 more messages each. And so my goal is to do the whole series comprised of six mini-series in 60 messages. Now, we'll take breaks here and there, but I'm estimating that overall it'll take us about 18 months to walk through all 187 chapters of the Pentateuch. This is phenomenal because by chapter count, we're talking about almost 16% of the Bible in the next year, year and a half. Let me give you a second part of the how we're going to do the Pentateuch. In, In my reading and study over the past number seven, eight months, when I started looking into this, I've identified and chosen a particular theme with which to focus our thoughts in each book. And I've boiled down this theme to one word in each mini-series, which will be reflected in all the sermon titles and kind of help you know how to think about that book. Here are the key words which will reflect the theme we'll focus on in each book. In Genesis, the key word is kingdom. And just so you know, if you read all the way to Revelation, the key word in Revelation is kingdom because it's bookends. In Exodus, the key word is Israel. In Leviticus, the key word is holiness. In Numbers, the key word is maturity. And in Deuteronomy, I'm going to cheat and use a hyphenated word that I made up, covenant salvation. So I can still say we used one word. But covenant salvation makes it very clear that covenant and salvation go together, that God has a role as a covenant maker and we have a role as covenant members, not as under the covenant that God gave through Moses, but that we are under a new covenant which is very, very similar in so many ways and we'll see those similarities. So those are the key words that we'll look at to help you understand the book. The third part of how we're going to walk through the Pentateuch is just to talk about the challenges that are before us and how you can apply this. For almost every one of you, this is the only time in your life you will ever hear the entire Pentateuch preached. It is the only time in my life I will ever preach the Pentateuch. So I think it would be incumbent upon us to grasp this opportunity and to take it. So here are the challenges before us. Taking large sections and explaining them meaningfully in 50 to 60 messages. The way Genesis, for example, outlines itself, there's one message where we'll go over about 12 verses. There's another message where we'll go over 15 chapters. But that's the, that's the outline that Moses gave. If you don't like it, you can ask him about it when you get to heaven. We have the challenge of drawing accurate and meaningful conclusions as New Testament, New Covenant believers from the Old Covenant, from the Old Testament. We have the challenge of of looking at the continuity of God's total plan. How is something given at the base of a gigantic rock 3,500 years ago applicable to my life today? We have the challenge of engaging your mind to dig deeply and decide to think hard on a Sunday evening. Solution number one, take a nap. Solution number two, drink coffee before you get here. We have the challenge of not always having just one text to look at, particularly in the introduction series. And so because of all these challenges, I want to encourage you to make a mental and make an intellectual and an emotional and a spiritual commitment to take in larger chunks of information. There was a decision I had to make prayerfully before deciding to embark on this. I had to decide that by God's grace, I believe in you, that I believe in your ability to do this. We have to do it together. How could you apply this to your life? Well, let's talk about how to do that even starting right now. The the, the first one is easy. Start reading the Pentateuch. You've got a four-week head start, but the clock is ticking now. Could I encourage you to pray before and after every message? Could I encourage you to believe that God will use this as a life-altering growth experience? I would like to encourage you also to make this a priority in your life. If I can just be honest, you will not grasp the Pentateuch in random little pieces by showing up every third time. 
you, you won't get it. You won't grasp it. If you miss two Sundays, we'll be 15 chapters away from where we were previously. Take hold of this opportunity in all likelihood. This is our only opportunity to do this. And my hope is that someday in heaven, we have a little reunion where all the people who went through the Pentateuch together, we kind of have a little party and, and, and remember that time. And finally, I think the most important application is invite unbelievers because I've made a commitment that in all 60 messages, if at all possible, I'm going to draw a map from the Pentateuch all the way to the cross of Christ because the story of redemption and salvation is a contiguous story. It does make sense together. And in fact, I'll draw that first map to close out our time this evening. Moses met with the Lord Jesus Christ on two occasions that are recorded in Scripture. The second time is recorded in the Gospels at the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was briefly transfigured into his glorified form. The first time is recorded in Exodus chapter 3 when the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, a pre-birth physical appearance of the only member of the Trinity who appears in physical form, the Lord Jesus Christ himself appeared to Moses in the midst of a burning bush. God did not come as a burning bush. He appeared in the burning bush. But just listen to these similarities. The first time Moses met with Christ, Christ appeared in the glorious flaming holiness of his purity, telling Moses to take his sandals off because the place he was standing was holy ground. The second time Moses met with Christ, Christ's face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. The first time Moses met with Christ, it was right before God redeemed Israel from slavery to Egypt. The second time Moses met with Christ, it was right before God redeemed mankind from slavery to sin. The first time Moses met with Christ, Christ spoke to Moses about the exodus of Israel from Egypt. The second time Moses met with Christ, Luke 9.31 records that Jesus, quote, appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The Greek word for departure here is pronounced exodus and is speaking of his coming death. The first time Moses met with Christ, Christ would accomplish the redemption of Israel by slaying the firstborn of Egypt and sparing the firstborn of Israel because they offered a substitute lamb. The second time Moses met with Christ, he was about to be the lamb of God, offered to spare the souls of all who would believe in him. And the first time Moses met with Christ, he was about to defeat the greatest ruler of the world named Pharaoh, and the second time Moses met with Christ, he was about defeat, to defeat the greatest ruler of the world named Satan. You cannot deny the connection between Pentateuch and the New Testament. Now, Moses could arguably be given the title most important man in the Old Testament. He worked the greatest miracles of the Old Testament. He spoke with God face to face. He led millions of people to life and freedom. He confronted the most powerful man on earth basically with a stick. He's the writer of the most important books of the Old Testament. And as we saw earlier in Deuteronomy 34, he is counted as completely unique in all of prophetic history. Quote, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. But he fulfilled a specific function, a specific role, a specific mission, a specific goal, a, a direction that he was always headed the one that we cannot lose in our study of the Pentateuch. Hebrews 3 verse 5 says that Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. And what was his role as a servant of God? The rest of Hebrews 3 5 says that Moses was given by God, quote, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. What things? Hebrews 1 tells us long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Moses, greatest man in the Old Testament yet lowly servant of God was pointing the way to the son of God and as such Hebrews 3 verse 3 says for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Now, the comparisons between Moses and Jesus are so many that a Jew who read the Pentateuch was certain to recognize that Jesus had come from God. They are astounding 
in the numbers of comparisons and similarities between them. But that, my brothers and sisters, will be message, message number 60. We will look at Moses and Jesus and our last message in Deuteronomy 33 and 34. Because just like Moses would lead his people out of bondage, Jesus Christ is the only answer to the bondage of sin. He alone has provided the right sacrifice of himself to satisfy the the terrible wrath of God against sin. And like the time of Moses, all of humanity has a choice. Either fall under the terrible plagues of God in judgment or pass through the Red Sea under the protecting hand of God to the safety of salvation and eternal life and innocence and holiness before God. And so we end our first message looking to Christ And the final message in the series will look to Christ. And I pray that you will see the clear pathways to the cross and to the coming kingdom of Christ in the pages of the Pentateuch. That's my prayer for you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have before us as we've just kind of gotten this train moving here. And Lord, it's my prayer that as these precious believers in Christ, these redeemed ones, these chosen ones, as they're reading and studying on their own through Genesis, even now and through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, I pray, Lord, that you would bless their hearts, that you would see, that you would help them to see the God of the law, the God of redemptive history, the God of the Messiah, the God who is the Messiah. And that as we look at these all-important foundational books of the Bible, it would illumine our eyes to grasp all of Scripture and to see the redemptive plan of God, which begins in a glorious, perfect, pristine earth created by you and ends at a glorious, pristine, perfect earth recreated by you. And in between, we see the drama of you redeeming your people to be a kingdom of priests to offer wisdom or offer worship rather and honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we have the privilege now of looking at the beginnings, help us to be motivated, to be eager for the endings as well. For that time when Christ will return and establish the kingdom on earth that began in Genesis 1 was interrupted by sin and will be reestablished. Lord, I pray for each of these here that you would help them in their reading of the Pentateuch, that they would be diligent to study, to be prepared, and to be eager to learn and to grow so that they might be proper and true disciples, learners of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray this evening. Amen.